What's up, gentlemen? Before we begin, a friendly reminder that this podcast is not associated with any church, school, or calling body, and nothing we say here is meant to be perceived as the official doctrine, teaching, or theology of any church, school, or calling body. We're a bunch of dudes who love Jesus. We love talking about Jesus, and this is where we air out our thoughts, so don't take it as much more than that. I hope that this is edifying for you. Let's get started with the show. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Christ for Disciples podcast. I'm Pastor Paul Steinberg, son of a Ken and father of five sons. Each weekday on the Christ for Disciples podcast, I apply God's word to raising the next generation. Take 10 minutes each weekday to listen to the Christ for Disciples podcast and get direction and gospel power to disciple the youngest generation. Subscribe to the Christ for Disciples podcast by going to ChristForDisciples.com or searching on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and whatever else. ChristForDisciples.com. You are listening to the Gird Up Podcast. This is the place where young men come to learn what it means to be a man after God's own heart. To gird up is an ancient way of preparing oneself for hard work or a battle ahead. And our work is to reclaim masculinity in the modern world and live out our calling as men of God. Here you will find a community of believers working hard to be the men that God created them to be. So roll up your sleeves, gentlemen, and gird up. It's time to get to work. All right, gentlemen, guest today is Professor Luke Thompson. What's going on, Luke? Hey, Charlie, how you doing? It is fantastic to be here. I love the vibe of your space here. I've been <laughs> thinking since I arrived here exactly what what you're doing to it that's giving me this incredibly homey kind of, uh, you know, cottage feel to it mm-hmm. because we just bought a house a little bit ago and and I like I love the vibe. So this is very, very cozy. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Nice. The goal yeah. was Higgy, right? Higgy. Okay. A little bit of Higgy, yep. some Scandinavian mm-hmm. influence, even though I'm not Scandinavian, right? Yep. But uh, I, what you what you're saying that makes me chuckle a little bit. I remember uh, a few years ago, my mom and dad bought new furniture you know, after being called workers for their entire lives. They bought new furniture, and somebody, while they were selling a furniture, was like, hey, you want the like the weathered look or like the you know textured? Or we can make it look old. Right. And she's like, yeah. this is the first time we bought new furniture in our entire marriage. Like, we don't want it to look old. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But uh, that's 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 how you achieve the cottage vibe is a lot of thrift store furniture. Is, Got it. Got yeah. it. And Note been to really, self. Yeah. Been really blessed by some very generous people over the years, too, to, to be able to have the stuff that we have here. So the other thing is um, it it's a classic, like, bachelor pad. If When the walls are bare, it's not nearly as homey. So I believe you it. you got to cover up yep. the walls a little bit. And, it yeah, it feels like me. It feels like me. It looks like you. Yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. Now I'm going to have to do, like, a house tour online or something like that. <laughs> so you are a professor up at Martin Luther College. I am. Um, you want to talk a little bit about how you got there and the ministry that you've done so far? So I've only been there about eight months. This is my second semester. I was originally, at least before this, I was spending eight years as a pastor in Ottawa, Ontario, in Canada. So uh, the trucks, right, all the truck demonstrations, that was a five, ten-minute walk from the the front steps of our church and from the front door of our house. So that's where we were serving the last eight years, an incredibly diverse, uh, strange location that we were at. So we were right in the middle of this downtown capital 
uh, metro city. We were also right on the campus of University of Ottawa. So we did lots with university students. It was also a large immigrant area. Uh, so we had tons of immigrants that we regularly got to pastor. In the last four or five years, we had just tons of especially South Sudanese people that I just had the immense uh, privilege and joy to be able to share and pastor. But we had people from all over the world uh, that gather, gathered together in our church there in Ottawa. Tons of government workers, so we could not make too many jokes about tax collectors. <laughs> during uh, during our sermons, um, we had plenty of people that worked for the, the Canadian Revenue Service there. And then lots of blue-collar people as well. Uh, so it was just an incredibly, incredibly strange, wonderful place to serve. Um, the uh, like Obviously, Canada just tends fairly liberal politically. Um, and the Christian church doesn't have a huge... Um, foundation there if, if, if I understanding is correct is that true yeah it's basically a post-christian so ba- kind of think of Canada as halfway in between secular Europe and America whatever we are right now okay. Canada's about halfway in between there is a lot of of Christian roots uh, but there's not much grown out of it these okay. days and there is uh, low numbers of people going to church. There was, back in the 60s, what's called the the Quiet Revolution that took place where basically, especially in eastern Canada where we were at, in Quebec, there was a widespread rejection of Catholicism at that time and a major period of secularization that took place. And so we were kind of working in the shadows of all of that. What kind of like unique... Unique challenges come alongside that because in the states, a lot of times the challenge is actually kind of pulling. We don't want to steal sheep, right? Yeah, I can't imagine you had a whole lot of that problem in Canada. We did not. When it came to campus ministry, for example, if you go to a college university here in the states, basically every piece of property, every house that is around a college is probably owned by some church, right? You've got just tons of churches and campus ministries that have all of these properties around. Uh, colleges here. In Canada, that just does not exist. At least it did not in Ottawa where we were at. I did not know of a single piece of property that was purchased by a church specifically to serve campus students. I only knew of one full-time campus pastor in the entire city of Ottawa. There might have been a couple more, but I only knew of one. When I was serving in uh, College Station, Texas at Texas A&M, there was a Bible class that was going on at the same time as our church body's Bible class that had 2,000 students that showed up to it. It was incredible. In Canada, in University of Ottawa, the most active group, it might have been a Campus Crusades for Christ group or an university club, they would have about 200 members tops. So, so on the one hand, that meant we did not even ever, ever have to think about sheep stealing because there just weren't any sheep. On the other hand, Campus ministry, the very idea of being a church that serves students was alien to the culture, Mm. right? So we had lots of students that just did not uh, know that there was such a thing as a community, a place where they could gather as Christians or where they could bring their friends to learn about Christianity. And so we were very strange in that regard as far as what we did. So there was that kind of diversity that we had on the campuses um, that made us 
particularly weird looking just in our neighborhood. I was listening to a chapel at MLC the other day, and uh, I forget what the text was, but it was an Old Testament text, an Isaiah text that had something to do with, uh, you know, how, how there were idols on every street corner, right? And this was one of the judgments that the prophet was making, or God was making through the prophet, that there were idols on every street corner. And I was thinking while, while the, the preacher was saying that, that kind of felt like what it was in Ottawa, where on every street corner, you didn't have physical idols, but you did have literally on the, the, the posts around our church block, every day you would go out there and you would find signs to this type of transcendental meditation group going on, signs to this Antifa club that is looking for recruits. You had literally everything in the whole panoply of evils of this world that were posted just... <laughs> you know, advertisements on the posts of our, of our, of the corners of our blocks. So it was just a very different world compared to, for example, when I was vicaring in College Station, Texas. Yeah. 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 Well, and so, I mean, your, your transition from College Station up to in the, like, I don't know if it technically is the Bible Belt, but if it is, it's the belt buckle of the Bible Belt, right? right. Yep. Um, and then uh, that transition up to Canada is quite a unique yes. um, juxtaposition, but, but you, you were a second career pastor too, right? I am. So um, what, what, like, <laughs> how does that, how, how did you end up being a pastor? Like, what is, what does your story look like? So technically I'm second career. I did not have a long <laughs> illustrious career in anything before becoming a pastor. But basically, I did lots of schooling in different areas, particularly philosophy, before deciding to become a pastor. So I've got a master's in philosophy from Marquette University. And so after getting that master's degree and deciding that my wife and I, that we wanted to go into the ministry full time instead of pursuing, I don't know, PhDs or something like that in philosophy, then while I was going through the seminary, I was teaching just adjunct positions at in philosophy at places like Bethany Lutheran College and Wisconsin Lutheran College. That was my day job while going through the seminary. So that's my background. Uh, spent lots of time before becoming a pastor, lots of time in campus ministries, particularly spending lots of time with apologetic topics, uh, lots of research in regards to how does... Christianity respond to pop culture topics, uh, literary topics, philosophy in general. That's kind of my background. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, if you kind of read between the lines, anybody that does that sort of study obviously is, is challenging their convictions, right? Right. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, you want to talk to that a little bit? Like what your maybe, um, like what did your faith look like, you know, in the early years and why did you choose philosophy? So, I'm pretty convinced that anyone that decides to originally get into philosophy is because they have this kind of, you know, youngish, naive, idealistic search for truth type of thing. They just want to know the answers to the deep questions in life. And, it, you know, that's just kind of how I was feeling. And as I was pursuing that in grad school, on the one hand, there was this deep reality check that academia, especially the world of philosophy, ivory tower philosophy, it's not quite as idealistic as you would think it would be. There was lots of competition going on. A lot of times it felt like philosophers today are just publishing to try to get their name out there to get stuff done. And there wasn't necessarily this very kind of just pure search for the truth, right? 
So that was happening on the one hand. On the other hand, I had some incredible mentors that were working with Christine and me at our church, at a Wells Congregation. I had uh, our pastor that was there, as well as an English professor that was my, my professor at Wisconsin Lutheran College, and then continued to mentor me while we were um, at our church. And, and especially my English professor, both of them, they just made the way they did ministry, the way that they opened up their homes, the way that they engaged with people, it was just a complete life-changing experience for us to kind of see the way that they did this, that they did their ministry. But especially my English professor, who was also a staff minister at the church, he really pushed me intellectually, engaged with me intellectually, and showed me, he, he opened up me to a lot of classical Christian apologists, guys like Lewis and Chesterton and others, and revealed to me that there was this incredibly rich intellectual uh, history to to Christians defending their faith, speaking about their faith in in uh, especially American Christianity. Um, but this goes all the way back to Augustine and others, right? Mm-hmm. So so that was especially eye opening, and it really just just made theology incredibly exciting for me. And it made me look at theology in a very different way where it wasn't just God's revelation for how to be saved, uh, which is awesome, right? Uh, The most important thing in the world, but it was also God revealing the deepest, darkest mysteries about the universe as well, right? It, It was providing the philosophical presuppositions that we need for things like a meaningful life and for understanding who we are and uh, and it was doubly exciting in that sense, the fact that it was this 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 uh, worldview book, you might say, as well as something that that meets our deepest spiritual needs. Yeah. Well, and you talk about um, how open you know the homes of many of your mentors were and how they did ministry. And I only yeah. got a small glimpse into it, uh, but you you had a, a group of us over at your house uh, a couple of weeks ago. And first of all, I absolutely adored the the small glimpse we got into into the f- culture of your family and things like that. And it is clear, um, both in conversation with you and just by example, how how important that kind of ministry is to you. And First of all, definitely appreciate that. Um, but then also, um, I got to meet your your son, whose name is Soren. Um, and it's not a common name. It is um, not. Especially in, in the States. So what's the story behind yeah. your son's name? It's a very common name in the Winter Olympics, if you're you know watching really? the teams I from Denmark that. and Sweden and stuff <laughs> like that. Uh, yeah, so so uh, his name's Soren. He's named after Soren Kierkegaard, who is a Lutheran philosopher. He's a controversial one. Um, but... The reason we named him after Kierkegaard uh, was because my wife and I met in a philosophy course, you know, arguing slash flirting uh, in <laughs> class uh, about philosophical ideas and things like that, uh, and you know, discussing philosophers like Kierkegaard. So, yeah, I'm glad it worked out for you because in my experience, the flirting slash arguing doesn't always go very well. Especially sure, yeah. the, the deeper the content, the uh, the less it seems to be a yep. a, a boon to my dating experience. <laughs> <laughs> just from personal reflection. Uh, but so um, you obviously find great value in a study. And you even just talked about how um, studying philosophy actually made theology more exciting for you. Um, but what is the value of like the study of philosophy um, in general? Um, like what is the value that, like, cause you talked about how, you know, the, the culture sometimes of the, you know, the philosophical realm, if you will, is, is more competitive than it is necessarily seeking understanding. Right. Um, 
but there must be value there if people are seeking it so heavily. So uh, what is the value to the world and what is the value to Christians? So just in a nutshell, if we were to ask what exactly is philosophy, philosophy is just that discipline that asks the the fringe, fringe questions are the most foundational questions. What is the nature of reality? How do we know anything? What is the, the fundamental foundation for being able to do things like ethics, right? What do we root value in? How do we get value? Um, what does it mean to, to have meaning or purpose in life, right? So these questions in philosophy, there's a discipline basically for each one of these questions. Uh, everything from ethics, how to act to aesthetics, right? What does it mean that something is beautiful, right? And can we still use those terms given different worldviews? So, so that's the general field. And as such, I mean, we're, we're created as humans with incredible intellects. We think of exactly what Adam and Eve were created to do. Basically, God created in Adam and Eve these these people with intellects that love to learn and to explore, right? And to do things like philosophy and science and art and exploration. And then he placed them in a perfect world for that, right? Uh, he placed uh, these artists and explorers and thinkers in a world that is designed for, for doing art and for exploring and for asking deep questions, right? So we were designed to ask these types of questions. Now, of course, uh, since the 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 first few days of creation or however long they had something changed and we now have this fallenness that has made the pursuit of this knowledge uh, completely bankrupt in a lot of ways but christians with their redeemed knowledge right with their reclaimed reason that now serves their god ministerially we can now ask these questions still, right? And and go out and kind of figure out, well, what can we say about the nature of this world? Yeah. Um, in Christian circles sometimes, and, and maybe maybe you'll disagree with Manus, but it seems to me that in Christian circles often um, we almost, and maybe this is the older generation too, um, maybe I'm throwing the older generation under the bus, I don't know, but there often seems to be an attitude in Christian circles that almost views philosophy as something dangerous, like the snake you don't want to step on, right? And the sure. idea that um, you're talking about meaning and you're talking about finding you know, my place in the world and, and establishing meaning in my life and purpose and things like that, um, and often Christians will simply come back to, well, that's what I find, it, like, that's what Jesus is for, right? I find my identity in Christ, and any further pursuit of that is going to be something dangerous if I'm not directly looking back to Christ. Um, so the question, I guess, that I'm coming around to is, is the study of philosophy something that could be potentially dangerous to a young Christian specifically? Um, and maybe how does a Christian approach philosophy as opposed to well, a heathen um, or someone that doesn't, doesn't necessarily love the Lord? Yeah. So, so I think there's two things to say. So on the one hand, if you're talking about why does there seem to be such a strong criticism of philosophy in general among Christendom? There's kind of two reasons for that. One is an anachronistic reason. Uh, before the 1600s, when we used the word philosophy, so for example, when Luther uses the word philosophy or theologians before that, the meaning of that word is not the same thing as the discipline of philosophy today. Where it, is, where it is strictly, when I say philosophy today, it is strictly these disciplines within the field, like epistemology, 
or ontology or ethics, things like that. Originally, philosophy just meant the general pursuit of wisdom in all of its various means. So that means that, that you would include science in there, right? Uh, both the hard sciences as well as politics. Uh, all of these things were considered part of the, the study of philosophy. And so you can read, for example, uh, certain of the Lutheran church fathers after Luther, that when they use the term philosophy and then they list the disciplines, it's way more than just, you know, what we would study in intro to philosophy course. It includes science and things like that. Well, and that's interesting because I, I have noticed in the past that like, for, you know, Luther and some of his contemporaries, they talk about philosophy. It's very different than the way like Walther right. talks about philosophy. Yep. So yeah, okay, that makes sense. Now. I never yep. thought about that before. And so if we're talking about just the general pursuit of wisdom, right? Uh, the general pursuit of knowledge where we're talking about just philosophy or not just philosophy, but science, right? Uh, politics, all these other fields altogether. If we're just talking about that, then anytime you are pursuing something, because we have our sinful natures still, there is an incredible potential for our reason to, to function in what we call a magisterial sense, where our reason is going to begin to act like it is in complete control and in charge of our learning. And there's just a temptation then for what we learn in these fields to put things like what, what we believe by faith as, as second rate compared to it, right? So, so that's the strong temptation. And in that sense, uh, philosophy is dangerous in the same way as studying science is dangerous today, right? So if you are studying you know, science at a secular university, then there are tons and tons of pitfalls, right? But if you get to study science first with a Orthodox Christian, right, uh, that is going to model for you how to rightly put reason in a ministerial role as you study science, then you all of a sudden realize that science is this beautiful field for exploring God's world, right? In the same way, uh, the, th the same thing happens in philosophy. If you just go to a secular university um, where you are just not prepared to see all of the different ways that people have mishandled, uh, people have misapplied reason and have used it magisterially, then you're going to be in trouble, right? Uh, then there's huge, huge problems. But if you have a Orthodox Christian uh, that is studying philosophy with you first, that knows what they're doing. I had an incredible philosophy professor in my undergrad. Then all of a sudden that changes the discipline of philosophy. Then it becomes a way of serving the Lord, right? You still have to be careful in the same way that a scientist still has to be careful because you're operating in a world that's fallen, you're fallen. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that we are designed to explore this universe that also means asking questions like, well, how, how do I know things, right? That's a legitimate question to ask. How do I know things? Um, what does it mean that life has meaning, right? Or purpose, right? Um, these are legitimate questions that we can ask. And when we ask them as Orthodox Christians, we can ask those questions from within our Christian worldview, and we can find the role, right role of reason within them. Yeah. Um, this is my assessment, so this may not be, um, you might have to help me limp along here uh, in the philosophy department, but it seems to me like one of the greatest fears that Christians specifically have in regards to philosophy, or even just people of faith in general, is that we're going to dive into this, and if we go deep enough, we'll eventually find there's a point where my 
where faith fails, where I can no longer, I just simply can no longer believe. And, and there's people that will tell you that that's been their experience where they, when they dove in and they finally went down, you know, not the black hole, but went down the hole. Sure. Um, when they got to the bottom, they found that their, their faith failed. And Paul even says, like, if this faith is not true, we are to be pitied more than, mo- more than anyone else. Right. Right. Um, do you want to address that? Well, what's interesting is you, you brought up Paul, right? And what's the context in which he says that? He's talking about the resurrection, right? So if our if the resurrection has not happened, then our faith is futile, right? Mm-hmm. Then we're the most to be pitied in the world. And so when Paul is talking about that, he's not talking about his faith as a blind faith, right? As if somehow what he believes has absolutely no connection whatsoever with the world that we live in, that it just kind of floats in his kind of subjective, relative point of view, completely detached from reality. No, his, the whole point of that chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, the whole point of it is to talk about the resurrection as a very real historical event that happened in the world. He lists his creed with all of the witnesses that were there. We know that that creed comes from a very early date as well, that it predates 1 Corinthians. And so Paul's whole point in saying that is to root the his to root the resurrection in history, right? To show that the reason that we uh, the reason that we have hope is because this thing actually really did happen in history, right? Our faith, what we believe, is connected with this world, and what divine revelation does is it shows us how our faith is rooted in this world historically, right? So, so. In a certain sense, that's what that's what a Christian philosopher is going to be trying to do as well, right? Is to show that the deeper you look at these questions, the more you recognize that God's revealed word provides a foundation for legitimizing some of our some of our deepest needs, right? So, for example, you take something like purpose, believing that you that your life has purpose in life. In order for your life to have purpose, right, to believe that somehow you don't just create your own purpose, but that a perp- that, that you were born with a purpose, which is a deep feeling that, that, that many humans have, right, that, that our lives are not mistakes, that they're not random, that there's some type of purpose or order behind it. To do that, you need some type of purposer, right? You need some kind of context that gives that purpose. And contemporary... Philosophies that teach things like we live in a completely postmodern setting, where uh, where there is no God, where our values are rooted in nothing, then there is no way to validate this 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 thing that we know, right? That there that there should be some type of purpose in order to this world. Well, what does Scripture do? It gives us that setting. It gives us not just the setting, but it it clearly defines for us the purpose. Uh, that we have in this world, right? So there you have scripture answering these deep philosophical questions and needs that we have. And there's just no question in my mind that when we look at, when we compare what scripture tells us about the reason that humans are created and the roles that we have, and this gets into like deep, beautiful things like the doctrine of vocation and all this kind of stuff, when we see that, that is just far more satisfying, right? That, That somehow resonates um, uh, in a way that an atheistic kind of Nietzschean view of the world just doesn't, right? And and what we can do then as Christians is we can step back, and once we realize, you know, that 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 this is true and that what Scripture has told us is true, well, what is what is what does Paul tell us? But what was really going on is that the Holy Spirit was working 
through God's word as you were learning these things and was creating that faith and that trust in this truth, right? So our doctrine uh, fits with this idea that uh, we can explore some of these questions, some of them, not all of them, right? There's always going to be mystery and that's a sign that this is a true worldview as well, right? That we can't explain everything perfectly. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that, that, that there's deep questions that we can answer. And uh, that gives us a lot of times what we're looking for, right? Like purpose in life. Yeah. I have two follow-ups to that. You, yeah. you lean pretty... I'm going to lay them both out so I don't forget them. <laughs> so first, you lean pretty heavily on... Uh, the resurrection as historical fact. And obviously we accept that as Christians, but we don't, uh, we don't uh, often really ponder what does that mean? Like what, is, what does that really mean in my daily life? Um, the other thing that, that I just observe in this is that you said um, there's always going to be mystery. There's going to be things that we don't understand. Is that something that's unique to the Christian perspective? Um, or is that something that kind of spans the realm of, of philosophy? Um, so I... <clears throat> You know, I don't have the ability to say that, that that's absolutely unique to Christianity and no other philosophy in the world acknowledges mystery, right? But this is the way that Chesterton put it in, in his book, Orthodoxy. So if you have a materialistic worldview where you believe that this universe is nothing but matter, right? And this is a kind of prevailing view, at least a very functional view for, for a lot of scientists and philosophers today. If you believe that the university is literally nothing but matter and everything can be explained in purely physical terms, then you can come up with a complete explanation for anything that happens, right? You can explain everything, but the way Chesterton puts it is it's as if you've got a perfect circle. You can explain everything, but that's a really small circle. And it leaves out most of life, most of the things that we think are most important, right? Because if everything can be explained in purely materialistic terms, then it's very hard to see how there's such a thing as free will, right? Uh, that we're not just determined, that somehow uh, that just chance and determinism over time has just literally led to us having this conversation and that there aren't actually any minds behind it. Right. Which means that there's no such thing as relationships as we oh. as we think of it. No such thing as love or friendships. Right. All of these things that we that we took for granted before as the most important parts of life are left out. Mm -hmm. Right. They're left out out of of the explanation. So it's a perfect explanation. It's a perfect circle, but it's a very, very small circle. <laughs> Christianity is very different than this in the sense that we have incredible central questions answered. So, for example, we have a basis for, for understanding why there's such a thing as love and relationships and, and, and the context for how these things can happen, right? We were created for these things, and even though there's, there's sin that's part of this world, this doesn't change the fact that we can still experience friendship, right, and love and things like that. So that's all part of the Christian worldview, but there's also a huge amount of mystery, that's part of it, right? Things that we're never going to explain. And one of the beauties, particularly of confessional Lutheranism, is that we embrace these mysteries, especially any mystery that, that has to do with the fact that, yes, we believe there's a God right, that created this world that has complete providence over this world. But when that God uh, tries to reveal himself to us, right, there's going to be inconsistencies. Things like predestination, right? And God's will 
uh, versus there's human, there's questions, right? Things that we're not going to be able to fully understand. There's mysteries, the mystery of the incarnation, right? The mystery of things like the means of grace and the sacraments. Um, there's, there's profound mystery, but it's a beautiful mystery, and the central questions have been answered, even though there's still all of these mis- these mysteries that are part of it. It still gives us a a a explanation, an explanation of a world that that has the things that that we know ought to be part of this world, right? You can't do that with something like a materialistic evolutionary explanation. All the good things are left out in that case. So yeah. we don't have a perfect circle, right? Instead. Uh, Chesterton's analogy of this was we have something more like a cross. It goes out infinitely in all directions, but there's a contradiction at the middle, right? And that contradiction is God operating in this world. Uh, We can't wrap our heads around us, but that's okay. We shouldn't be able to if, in fact, there's a God that created space and time and is somehow outside of space and time. Yeah, yeah. Well, so you you mentioned Chesterton. I said Walter earlier. I meant Chesterton. That's what I was thinking. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. But what Chesterton talks about is he he compares... um, uh, philosophers with mathematicians, right? And he says, right. um, mathematicians never go mad because they're just simply, <clears throat> this is his language, not, not yep. ours, right? Uh, but they never go mad because they're simply observing um, as opposed to a, a philosopher who tries to take the, the expanse of the universe and fit it into his own head and eventually your head's just not big enough, it's going to break. Yep. Um, but or Sometimes he compo- uh, compares poets, right, and philosophers. Oh, yeah. In the same way. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, so, and I don't know how much you can speak to this. Hopefully you can answer this. Um, what is the effect psychologically of that closed circle? You know, if, if this really, you know, the Elon Musk philosophy, right? If this is all just a, a construct or, or it's a, a, what's his term? Um, a, uh, not a, like a video game idea where it's, ah, shoot, you know what I'm talking about? Um, a simulation. There we go. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So obviously without, then you're, you're right. Uh, relationships have no meaning there is no such thing as love you know all these things it's just it doesn't have any meaning no and frank for me personally like those are the most there's nothing in my life that's more valuable than that and i can't imagine the psychological effect of of losing that meaning so can you speak to that a little bit sure so one way of thinking about this is is if if you are not given a purpose in this world, then you have to construct a purpose, right? If you're not given an identity, then the best thing you can do is create an identity for yourself. And this sounds like, well, then I just have to do that and everything's fine, right? Once I get that identity. Well, what does that actually look like? So existentialists, for example, like uh, like Jean-Paul Sartre, who embraced this idea that there is no God and how do we live like this? One of the ways that he goes about explaining this is saying, so what Christianity offers is the idea that uh, that essence precedes existence, right? So people like Augustine teach that essence precedes existence. So before, if we're looking at a chair, for example, before the carpenter made this chair, before the carpenter brought this chair into existence, the chair still had a being, its essence was still something that existed, but it was in the mind of the carpenter, right? Mm. So what the carpenter did was he brought this chair into existence, but the chair was first in his mind, and then he simply brought that 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 picture in his mind into existence when he when he created the chair. So the essence of the chair preceded, it was in the mind of the carpenter before it existed, right? Augustine says, well, this is how we think of ourselves, right? If the Bible is true, then before the creation of this world, before uh, God 
put a single atom into existence in his mind was already Charlie, right? He knew uh, that he was going to create Charlie. He knew what Charlie was going to be like. He knew that Charlie was going to need a savior. And so part of his plan was he provided Charlie that savior. He provided Charlie then someone to share that gospel message with him so that Charlie could have faith, right, and be united with God. And then he gave Charlie a vocation, right? He gave Charlie then all of the unique places in life where where Charlie would be able to serve him, right? And so our purpose and our meaning in life is completely bound up with the fact that we first uh, were an essence in the mind of God, and then he brought us into existence, right? So that's that's how Augustine describes that. Sartre says, well, if there is no God, then obviously essence cannot precede existence. So instead, he says existence precedes essence. What this means is that because there is no God, we simply just start to exist, right? We just come into exist with no essence, no, no real identity of who we are. But once we begin to exist, then we start to make choices, and the choices we make then shape our essence. And so this is the big kind of thrust of, of especially atheistic existentialism is that the choices we make in life then shape our identity and who we are. And this sounds like a good thing, right? It sounds like, well, then all I have to do is just make the choices that I want to choose in order to become the person that I want to be. And I would... I would love you to try that, right? To see if you could actually make the choices to become the person that in your mind you want to be. Because what happens to all human beings we know is that when they wake up in the morning and they look in the mirror and they ask themselves, who am I? If their identity is bound up only with their choices, then what's their identity? What's the essence that they've created for themselves? I'm a cheat, right? Uh, I'm a fake I'm a gossip, right? I'm someone that murders with my thoughts. I'm someone that commits adultery with my thoughts, right? We just lift, we list off all the things we've done. And so we look in that mirror and the person that we've created, if our essence is really simply the choices we've made, then that's just devastating, right? That's incredibly devastating. And so that's, that's the issue, right? Is that the moment someone sits back and if they're telling themselves, all I have as far as determining what my purpose and meaning in life are the choices that I've made, right? If that really determines my value and my worth and why I'm here, this is an incredibly uh, destroying proposition, right? And no one is free from this, obviously. How different is that than the Christian, right? That, that the Christian wakes up in the morning, looks in the mirror and says, I know... <laughs> I know all the things I've done, but my identity is not bound up in what I've done, right? It's not bound up in the choices that I've made. Instead, I've been made a precious child of God, right? Christ, when he died on that cross, he was paying for my adoption ship into his family. I am now clothed in his righteousness. And when God looks at me, he does not see the things I've done Instead, he sees his son and he treats me like one or his daughter and he treats me like one. That's my identity. And now my goal in life is not to shape who I am. Instead, it's now to strive to live up to, to, to who I am in Christ, right? As an act of love and thanksgiving. Yeah. 
one of my favorite ways to talk about it, and this is not original to me, but one of my favorite ways to talk about that is um, I can either make a value statement about myself yep. or I can look to my – the creator of the universe already made a value statement about me. Yep. And his value statement was I would re- gladly trade my life for yours. Yep. And there is no greater statement of value than that. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And that becomes the basis then for everything that we do. Right now, the choices we make are no longer ones that we are choosing in order to somehow shape our own identities, right? Or if we believe that there's a God to somehow to prove to God that that he should love us or something like that. Instead, what does John say, right? This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave himself up for us, right? And then John says, in response to that, love one another, right? So, so the love that we reflect in life is now one that we are just willfully and joyfully doing out of thanksgiving. It is not something that we are doing in order to earn some identity, in order to somehow prove uh, that we're worthy, um, because because if that's what it was, we'd, we'd fail completely. Instead, this transforms ethics for the Christian, right? It transforms it into an expression of love and thankfulness. Yeah, amen, amen. Uh, a few years ago, you wrote a book called Your Life Has Meaning, right? Um, yeah. First of all, what led you to write the book? Um, and second, why did you why did you name it Your Life Has Meaning? Well, answer the first question is I did uh, some Bible classes. Well, so so I've been doing putting together presentations on you know different philosophical topics and uh, especially um, pop culture kind of things and stuff like that for a long time. And I also then did an in-depth Bible class on Ecclesiastes at one point. And the book was an excuse for me to kind of pull some of the illustrations that I've used in the past that I didn't want to forget. Some great uh, 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 times that I've had with people, right? And to kind of pull them together into one work and... And it just made sense with everything that I was researching going through that Ecclesiastes would be the most natural way of kind of pulling all of these things together. The title of the book, Your Life Has Meaning, I actually did not name it that. So, but it's close. The, <laughs> the title that I originally wanted it to have, the interesting thing about writing a book is that you can write all the words in the book, but then someone else chooses the title. <laughs> uh, the original one was The Meaningful Life, right? And uh, the idea is that that I wanted, um, you know, anyone that's, that's asking themselves, well, what does it take to have a meaningful life, right? Or how can I call my life meaningful? Um, how, can I, how can I attach that adjective, right, to, to my life? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a manual for that in the sense that it is a way of showing how the gospel provides that. Ecclesiastes, interestingly, is is a book that's the opposite of that, right? It's showing how you can't provide that meaning on your own, right? And so it ends with with the with the imperative, remember your creator. But I pair with that then, right? The gospel promises of how the gospel does then give you meaning, right? And purpose that you could never find anywhere else. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, it's it's a it is a blatant and straightforward statement, right? Your your life has meaning. Right. Is this an issue that that is common amongst I mean, Americans and Canadians? Um, I think it's common in first world countries where people have the the free time to sit back and start thinking 
about their lives. It only really happens in that context where, you know, someone stops and then they begin to think about their life. So the philosopher Albert Camus, who was also one of these existentialists, uh, he wrote a famous essay called The Myth of Sisyphus, where he was trying to say, well, well, when we when we look at our lives, when we have the time, we can step back and we can see that our lives are completely absurd and, and meaningless, just as absurd and meaningless as in that Greek myth where Sisyphus was cursed to always push a boulder up a mountain. And then the moment he got to the top, the boulder would just roll back down, right? That's, and he says in his essay, that's what all of us do in life, right? If in his atheistic framework, if there's no God, that's life. It's completely absurd. We have this meaningless striving that we're doing, right? But he says in the essay, this only happened, like we only realize this when we've got time to stop and be conscious of it when we're reflecting on it. And when we live in first world countries where we have the, the, uh, the financial and the economic uh, situation where we do have times to sit back and reflect, then this becomes brutally obvious to a lot of people, which is why, you know, it's, it's in first world countries that you have things like, you know, spiking suicide rates and stuff like that. It's because you just reflect and if you've got a worldview where your life doesn't have any meaning, where you can't justify it in any way, in the way that we were talking about, for example, with Sartre and, and existence preceding essence, then it's, it's, it's hard, right? Um, then this becomes an issue. And this then provides an incredible opportunity for the Christian to say, no, no, your life does have meaning, right? Your presuppositions were wrong, yeah, right? Um, you made an interesting choice in the book. You you kind of rooted the entire book on the book of Ecclesiastes, which you you uh, hinted at your your reasoning for that in your earlier answer. Um, but but you want to talk to why Ecclesiastes, and then you also brought in a lot of um, uh, non Christian philosophers as well, and, and yeah. even use some of their uh, statements and arguments um, to aid your case for Christ, if you will. Um, so you want to talk to that juxtaposition and why you made the choices you did? Sure. So Ecclesiastes begins with a philosophical statement about reality, that if we're just looking at life under the sun, just as it, as we might say, kind of empirically appears to us, and we're not, we're not considering there being any kind of transcendence, anything over it all, but just as it kind of rootly appears to us as this kind of empirical mess of things, it appears meaningless to us. Um, injustice reigns. Human life isn't treated like it's valuable. We strive after achievement after achievement, but it just proves to be worthless if we're just going to hand it off to someone that's going to squander it. And so one of the keys to understanding Ecclesiastes, I think, is that we have to picture Solomon writing this in his old age, reflecting back at his life. And if you know anything about Solomon, the third king of Israel, the son of David, he was one of the richest rulers in Israel's history, if not the richest. He was known for his wisdom. He was known for his huge building projects, for his giant harem, for uh, all the wealth uh, that he had done. He was this huge accomplisher, right? In, in, in everything that a person could have, could have huge accomplishments in, he, was, he did it all. At the same time, it's very clear in the Bible that he was then led into idolatry, and that there was a good long period of his life where you really can't call him a believer at that point, where 
all of this success or whatever it was pulled him away from his God. And so Ecclesiastes, if you're asking, well, how can a, an inspired writer say that everything is meaningless under the sun? It makes most sense to me that we've got Solomon basically having a confession in his old age that he's looking back at his life at all the things that he tried to achieve and that they really amount to nothing if he does not have God, right? If he does not have uh, something over the sun, right? That gives meaning to everything that he's had. Otherwise, he's just left in a world of injustice and sin and squandered opportunities that don't amount to anything. And I think that's the way a lot of people today feel about their lives, especially when they reflect back on it, right? So on the one hand, that's why why Ecclesiastes, I think, is, is an incredibly useful tool for the Christian, because it is making this philosophical statement about reality that if there is no God, if we're just looking at life under the sun, or even if there's a God, but but we're left to our own works in order to somehow account for meaning, then life is still meaningless, right? Because we're never going to achieve the aims that we want. Uh, it's just a world of injustice, right? So I think that sets the stage beautifully then. And we can use lots of philosophers and thinkers and artists throughout history that have discovered that what we might call natural knowledge truth, right? That life is meaningless in the sense that Solomon says that it's meaningless. And we can find that. We can find that lots of people saying that. For example, Sartre uh, says that life is meaningless in this transcendent sense if there is no God. That's why he's coming up with some way to still live in the midst of the death of God. So we've got that. And yeah, what was the second question? Uh, well, yeah. the second question was why why uh, you lean so heavily on um, secular philosophers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So so there's a little addendum at the back of the book uh, that says something like for pastors or mm-hmm. something like that. And what that explains there is that my method for reading for writing this book and for the way that I arranged things and argued, I call it an, as your own poets have said, approach. And so if you know anything about the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, there are a few major kind of sermons or speeches that he gives there. There's one in chapter 13 where he gives a a sermon in Pisidian Antioch to some Jewish people. There is one later on, uh, uh, around 20, where Paul gives a sermon to a bunch of Ephesian Christians, right? Some leaders at that time. So we've got these beautiful models of how Paul communicates with the Jewish people and how he communicated with church leaders. But there's also then this account of him communicating with basically uh, secular uh, pagan philosophers in Athens on Mars Hill. And what's interesting is that when we look at how he communicates with them in the short bit that we're given, we don't, we don't assume that somehow this is the entire speech that he gave, but what we've got there, what's interesting is he never once quotes scripture. He doesn't use it at all. Instead, he relies on the natural knowledge of God. He's saying to his audience, uh, you guys worship God. You got some knowledge of this God, right? Even an altar to an unknown God, I'm going to proclaim this God to you. But then he goes on and, and as part of his reasoning with them, he quotes then their own poets and their own uh, Stoic philosophers. And by quoting them, he is using then their own thinkers that have discovered this natural knowledge that there is a God, right, that has created this world. And he's using that then 
as kind of support for his arguments that there is this God in the universe. And then what's interesting is he does bring up the resurrection, but he does not bring up the resurrection as a gospel thing, as in your sins are forgiven because this Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection is brought up as historical evidence that there is a judge, that there's a judge that will come one day. Um, And so that's his use for the resurrection is also to reinforce then uh, as a historical reinforcement, a historical fact that there is this judge that they need to be aware of and that they can no longer be ignorant about. So I'm trying to do something similar just in the sense that when it comes to certain natural knowledge truths, people can can come to this knowledge on their own, right? You don't need divine revelation in order to know that there's a God in this universe, to know that you've got a conscience, um, uh, and that, you know, if there's a God, there's no way that you can uh, uh, make things right, right, with this God, um, that God's all-powerful, right? Uh, uh, there's there's a lot of natural knowledge truths that, that poets have discovered. And so I'm pulling on some of that stuff contemporary poets in order to kind of support uh, my argument, the natural knowledge truths there. Yeah. Um, So to kind of combine a few different thoughts here, um, you mentioned how um, many people on earth do recognize some sort of morality or truth. um, And there is quite a bit of natural knowledge of God in the world. Um, What's the disconnect then? Like what's preventing them from, especially the, especially deep thinkers, right? The more they, they study the world, it seems that the less uh, they, they believe um, in regards to a deity um, instead of the more they believe. And as Christians, we're seeing it and going, how can you not see what I see? What's, what's the disconnect? Yeah, so, so on the one hand, we can definitely find lots of examples of people that when left to their own devices, they are continually getting further and further away from the idea that there's a God that exists. On the other hand, we do have plenty of examples of people in history that that by studying, uh, uh, by studying the subject, uh, they have come to the position that they do believe that there is uh, a God. So, for example, a good example of this would be the atheist philosopher Anthony Flew, uh, famous, famous atheist philosopher at the end of the 20th century, big Hume scholar, and uh, at the end of his life, he became a theist. And the reason he became a theist is he believed that the reasons were more compelling that there's a God in this universe than the reasons that there aren't, right? And he leaned on things like Aristotle's, you know, arguments for the the existence of God and stuff like that. So he became a theist, right? Now, he did not become a Christian, Mm -hmm. right? He did not become a Christian, at least as far as we know, he didn't. Um, Maybe there was something on his deathbed, but as far as we know, he did not become a Christian. And so some people might say, well, then it's, then who cares if he became a theist? And I suppose in some cosmic sense, you could say that. But if the question is, you know, what does, you know, what's someone's relationship with the natural knowledge of God? Scripture gives us a picture of this, right? So, for example, in Romans 1, Paul clearly tells us that, uh, that God's divine nature is clearly seen, right? Even though he is a hidden God, uh, his attributes are clearly evident in this universe, right? So, in some sense... Paul's got to be right, right? At the same time, he says, what do people in their sinful nature do? They suppress that, right? They suppress that truth. Now, in the same breath, he says, but, but people still have consciences, so they still know God's law, and they can still do things. So, it, it, you know, there's, there's natural consequences to following God's law that are good. It is, 
you know, you'll have a happier time in life if you're not murdering people and not stealing from people, right? And things like that. So the pagans know this, right? Uh, they do that, yet at the same time, Paul says they suppress the natural knowledge of God. They're suppressing the truth, and that suppression then of the truth that there is a God that is behind things, uh, that, that they are accountable ultimately to the one true God. The suppression of the truth then leads then to, uh, you know, the famous passages in Rome of, of all these unnatural living, right? All these unnatural things. So, so Paul is just very honest, right? There's, there's this natural knowledge of God. Uh, his attributes are out there, but by nature, the sinful nature wants to suppress that. Right now, even if, even if the natural, even if uh, someone doesn't suppress all of that knowledge and they still believe that there's a God, like many religious people in this world, right? Um, they're still, they still have not found the one true God, right? They're still shaping a God in some way according to their own definitions and their own images and things like that. They're still in some sense going after idols. And in that sense, you need something miraculous that is going to fix this problem, right? And that is exactly what Paul promises he has, right? He has then this Holy Spirit that is able to create faith in this one true God. So that's, that's the way that, that, that Paul, anyways, kind of looks at this whole situation. Yeah. And so uh, you make a very compelling case and, and, um, that philosophy does not stand in opposition to the Christian faith. Um, but we still have this clearly evidenced problem of students going off to university yep. and being exposed to the thoughts of the world and very quickly um, either being disenchanted or completely losing their faith. Yeah. Um, so why does that happen and what can we do to help? Yeah, so I, I think, like you said, philosophy right doesn't, have to be opposed to Christianity, right? And again, let's just think of philosophy as just a discipline, right? In the same way, science is not opposed to Christianity, right? But scientists, right? <laughs> certain scientists are opposed to Christianity. Mm -hmm. In the same way, there are certain philosophers that are opposed to Christianity. And just as certain scientists twist uh, God's truth, right? And certain scientists... Uh, argue for their position, right? Um, in, in deceptive ways, we have the exact same thing that happens with philosophers, right? So the solution for, for this is the same as it is, as it is if you're dealing with, you know, scientists, right? And, and, and the, the danger that this is to the church. Now, I think there's, so I've been working with campus ministry stuff for 15, 20 years or so. And I think that, that we might have a distorted view on why university students ultimately leave the faith when they, uh, when they go through college and things like that. So typically, the picture that we have in our minds is that somehow we have a kid that is 100% like doing awesome in his faith. He goes to university and then he's convinced by professors that somehow is his faith is false. And the data just does not support that that's what's going on. Gary Habermas, a famous Christian apologist that for a long time, you know, was going on university campuses, arguing for the historicity of the resurrection. After doing apologetics for 20 years, he came to the conclusion, uh, the, reason, uh, the reason college students are losing their faith is not because 
of an intellectual problem, that somehow they've had their faith proven wrong. Now, there's intellectual problems, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. The real motivation, the big problem is that college university students, uh, when they get to university, they do not have a community around them of Christians that are willing to go through especially deep emotional problems with them. So maybe they have an intellectual problem, and if they can't find uh, someone that can help them with that intellectual problem, let's say evolution or something like that, right? So, so a student goes off to college. He was believing in a young earth. He gets to college. He meets a professor, professor that says, you know, you're bonkers for believing that, right? The earth is millions of years old. Evolution is true. Habermas says, so that's an intellectual problem, right? But that's not like, that's not like a deal breaker. That's just an intellectual problem. And the student is either going to figure this out or he's not, but it's very possible that the student is just going to hold on. There's just going to be this tension. He's going to keep his faith, but there's going to be this tension. And if he never found a Christian that was able to help him go through this tension and work through this problem, like, you know, a good Christian friend, a pastor, right? Another Christian uh, science professor or something like that, that could help him navigate this. Then the problem is what happens next. Inevitably, that student is going to have what Habermas calls emotional doubt. There's going to be this incredible moment that happens in every student's life where they begin to say, why God? Why are you allowing these things to happen? Right? It could be anything from, you know, um, like, you know, why would you allow something like like a COVID pandemic to hit the earth? So why is there so much pain and suffering, but particularly like, like pain and suffering here, right? Something that the person's really passionate about, right? Or this friend of mine that died, right? Or this, the abuse that I'm going through, whatever it is, there's going to be this moment where, where the student is crying out, why God? And if the student had not found someone to help them with their intellectual problem that was a Christian, then they're not going to be searching for a Christian for their emotional problem. Instead, they're going to be going somewhere else. So, so the most important problem or the most important issue, Habermas says, is not that somehow people are being duped by their professors when they get to college. The problem is that, that most of our students do not have a community of Christians around them that are there with the means of grace. That's our language, right? The means of grace to encourage and to build up uh, their friends. That's the issue more than anything else. They don't have that community. The students that do have that community, they can go through incredible amounts of intellectual problems, but they've got that community around them of people that are encouraging them, keeping them connected to God's word, which is the only thing that strengthens and maintains faith, right? They are connected with friends that care, that are willing to explore these problems, even if they can't solve them all. They've got that community and that's ultimately uh, what brings them through. So surprise, surprise, it's the church, right? It's, it's, it's the church, right, that, that's, that's needed at these critical times. The church is armed with the means of grace. And so at least that's the way that we would kind of reword you know, the, the findings that Habermas has here. Um, and so that's the real issue more than anything else. And so it's important that we know our apologetics. It's important that we know uh, that uh, meaning in life only comes from God's word. But the only way that you ultimately get to encourage Christians in this, right, or to reach out with this in evangelistic opportunities is if you have these communities that you're building on university campuses where you are just open to helping people, 
right? Where you have a place that you can engage in these discussions. You have places where people have the opportunity to share what they're going through uh, so that you can encourage them, so that you can pray with them, so that you can find encouraging scripture with them. You take all those things away and you are literally taking away the means of grace, right? You are literally taking away the means of grace. And then it's, of course, of course, they're going to lose their faith because they've lost the means of grace, right? It all comes down to, in reality, these fundamental, well, for us, you know, in our confessional Lutheran church body, these fundamental teachings, you know, about what it is ultimately that gets someone through life, right, with their faith. Yeah. I mean, all the way back in Genesis, you know, mm-hmm. you got the two two huge main points in Genesis. Well, this is not main points, maybe. Two massive ideas in Genesis that I hear in what you're saying. The first is that same question the snake asked in the garden continues to be asked, and that's really what's being asked on college campuses, is did God really say, yeah. or you know, is what God said really important? Right? Yeah. Um, and then the other thing I hear is, you know, God looked at Adam and said, it's not good for man to be alone. He's not just talking about Eve. Yeah. He's saying it's not good for us to be isolated, so don't be isolated. And, and that's going to be very helpful on college campuses. It's also going to be true for absolutely anybody anywhere who wants to be strong in their faith. Yeah. Surround yourself um, or ask the Lord to help you surround yourself with people that are absolutely yeah. on fire for him. Because ideally what, what should have happened is Satan would have said, you know, did God really say? And Eve should have turned to Adam and said, yeah, well, what did God really say? <laughs> right? And and Adam should have been like, well, we know what God said, right? Mm-hmm. And Problem solved, right, at that point. But the problem is, right, uh, the means of grace, right? I mean, I don't know if we would technically use terms means of grace before you know, the, fall <laughs> into, the fall into sin. But someone speaking God's word, right, to their, their brother or sister, you know, um, right, that wasn't there. That wasn't there. Awesome. And it needs to be. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, would, I mean, I make that case on this podcast all the time. Most valuable, one of the most valuable things you can do in your life is to simply yeah. surround yourself with people um, that are on fire for Jesus the way you are. So mm-hmm. awesome. We're buttoning up against time here. Um, hate to let you go. There's so many more things we could talk about. Uh, but thank you for your time. Uh, it's been a huge blessing. Like that, that middle section there, you had me, you had me really pondering, um, you know, my own faith and my own my own existence a little bit this morning. So that was, that's a wonderful blessing too. I think, I think, uh, this book is real good at kind of showing how some of, uh, some doctrines, especially kind of confessional Lutheran doctrines, something like vocation, uh, the theology of the cross, how these things just fit beautifully into discussions of what does it mean to have a meaningful life or a life of purpose, Yeah. right? These are just like doctrines that are just itching, just waiting to be applied, right, in these ways. Yeah. Well, and to that, where where can people find your book if they want to read that? Uh, it is published by Northwestern Publishing House. So probably the easiest way to do it is to go to their website, nph.org, Net. I think. Uh, or a duck was net, I, mph. D- dot net. net. I don't even go. know. Yeah. Or <laughs> it's it's available on Amazon as well. I think there's uh, ebook versions of it. Yeah, and I'll put a link to that book down below. Uh, if somebody wants to reach out to you and contact you, maybe ask you some questions or whatever that might be. How can they get a hold of you? I'm at the college, so you can just uh, email me at Martin Luther College. Uh, I don't know my email address offhand, but they yeah, can just, I'll link that down below yep, as well. And if, yep. you, if you can't find it in the link, just then give, go to the website. Yeah, just and, give them a call. Yeah, yeah. go to the website. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right. Anything else you want to say before we... This has been great. So just thanks for having me on. I am just incredibly thrilled about uh, Grid Up and everything that you do here. And I just wish God's just unending blessings on 
on what you're doing here and that his spirit just continues to work as you as you use his word right and as you speak it Thank you. To bring it full circle here, we started out by talking about the house a little yes. bit, right? Yep. And and as comfy as it is and cozy as it is, it's kind of a crummy house and we're sitting at a secondhand table, right? How incredible is it that the Lord uses, I mean, this setup to yeah. reach literally hundreds of thousands people around the world. Yeah, it's bizarre. That's bizarre. Yeah. Yep. And that's a blessing. Mm-hmm. Until next time, gentlemen, go be the minute God created you to be. Pastor Thompson, thank you for your time. On behalf of all those involved in producing, recording, and publishing this episode, thank you for listening to the Gird Up Podcast. We hope it helps you along your journey to be a man after God's own heart. Be sure to check out the Gird Up channel on YouTube. There you will find many podcast episodes just like this one, but you will also find exclusive video content geared at helping you be the man that God created you to be by introducing you to other godly men, teaching you how to behave, study, dress, act, eat, and live like a man of God, and you'll find devotions to help you grow in faith. Please consider supporting Gird Up Ministries by donating on Patreon, shopping in the online store at girdupministries.com, or by making a $5 cup of coffee donation at girdupministries.com. Those donations help us make more great content just like this for young men just like you. Make sure that you like, follow, friend, and subscribe to Gird Up and our guests on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Those links are in the description. And as always, we will be praying for you on your journey. Blessings, men. Time to gird up and go be the man that God created you to be.